0: My decision to stop eating meat was the result of really questioning the way of thinking that supports the treatment of animals in our agricultural system, and that created an illusion that they were being treated in a safe way. That was a big one that I had to unlearn, and it shaped me in my daily life, even my career choices.
1: On this episode of The Creator Community, we'll meet Rohit Gupta, a former venture capitalist turned vegan and defender of Mother Earth. We'll hear how Rohit found himself often frustrated and anxious over his career and not being able to understand why. We'll then follow Rohit's journey of discovering the power of mental models and how through this experience he discovered his own unconscious biases and decided to make a radical change in his life and career. We'll hear how all of this led to Rohit publishing his debut book, The Invisible Filter. Check out the show. Welcome to the creator community. This is a podcast from book publisher, New Degree Press, or NDP. I'm your host, John Saunders. This show is designed to celebrate, elevate, and showcase many of the incredible authors that have published their books with NDP. This year, NDP will cross over 1,300 published authors and earn the 293rd spot on the Inc. Magazine 5000 list. This is the fastest growing privately held companies in America. This is episode 11 of season four. And today I have with me Rohit Gupta. Rohit is many things, a venture capital investor, nationally ranked speech and debater, skydiver and passionate vegan, just to name a few. He would describe himself first and foremost, though, as a lifelong learner driven by a desire to make the world a better place. Rohit transitioned to a vegetarian diet, cold turkey after eating meat daily for 20 years and graduated from UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business with honors. As an investor, Rohit has made several successful investments with a total return exceeding over $50 million. After reading over 200 books in the last three years, he decided to write his own, The Invisible Filter, as a guide to help others recognize and change their mental models to have more fulfilling, healthier lives. Rohit, quite a background. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, John. It's uh, it's great to be here. The pleasure is all mine. You know, before we jump into the book, let's share a little bit more about your journey. What what led you to this moment in time and getting a book off the ground?
0: Yeah, appreciate you asking. I think it's always interesting to share because my writing journey is a bit of a non traditional one. I think, as you yourself mentioned, I've been an avid reader for most of my life, and yeah, I think I've probably read at least over two hundred books in the last three years. So. Suffice to say, I love to read and the insights I've gained from reading have really made my life measurably, immeasurably better. So I've always wanted to give back and help improve others' lives with my own message, but I was just searching for the right topic. And then, you know, life works in serious ways. It kind of hit me when I found a topic I was passionate about, how the stories that we unknowingly tell ourselves shape our lives. I knew I wanted to share my journey and insights with others. And that's pretty much how the, the writing journey at a high level happened.
1: So, we're talking, I think, here about mental models. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So, how did this mental model thing even come onto your radar screen?
0: Right. Uh, great question. I came across the, the high level concept of a mental model back when, actually, my first job out of college when I was a product manager at a cybersecurity startup called ShieldX Networks. It was a really small team. And as one of the first product hires, you pretty much have to do everything, just like folks at any early stage startup. So during the day, I was a product manager, but by night I was working on design, working on sales, on so many other things. And a key concept I came across when I was learning about design and kind of teaching myself was that your users have these mental models, these Ways of thinking that they themselves are not often aware of. But your job as a designer or product manager is to elicit and understand those ways of thinking through deep research, interview questions, et cetera, and then create a product or a service that matches that pattern of thinking that they themselves are not aware of. So for the longest time, when I thought of mental models, I would think about it in that fashion, in terms of You know, ways of thinking that we're not really aware of, but more so in the context of, you know, tech and building products and services. And it was only later in life that I realized there's a whole other world out there of mental models you can consciously activate. I think Farnham Street Media is probably the best example of a blog or group that kind of collates these different frameworks, I'd say, or ways of thinking that we can use to improve our decision making in our lives. But, what I found, and in my own personal life, was that these ways of thinking kind of manifest in ways that we're not always aware of, whether that's through our mental health, our unconscious biases, the kind of pressure that we have to pursue certain careers, so on. And so forth. when I realized that, you know, I figured out that there weren't really many resources out there to kind of offer more clarity on what these patterns of thinking are, where they come from how they affect us and how we can change them. And that was pretty much my inspiration to write The Invisible Filter as a guide that I wish I had. And I'm really grateful to hopefully be offering to others of who are in that same process.
1: So you saw this aspect, this concept in many parts of your lives. Interesting that you found out about it in marketing and you know trying to align people's mental models, sort of leveraging their mental models, dare I say, against themselves to get them to buy something. Is that the idea? Uh, Kind of in a way.
0: Yeah. Right. Just to make it a better experience for them.
1: That sounds much better than what I said. Uh, (laughs) And then transferring as you sort of moved on in life, recognize that these mental models exist in many aspects of our lives. And it's just how we sort of shape our thinking. So how did all of this, you know, so you said you, you were inspired to want to help other people with this, but how did this lead you up to thinking, boy, I need to write a book about this? Like, how did that even writing a book come to your radar screen for... I think for many, it seems like a very insurmountable task.
0: Yeah. And to be honest, I think I'm a great example of that, where I had this realization after some embarrassing encounters where my unconscious bias kind of reared its ugly head, which made me really confront why am I thinking and behaving in this way, which runs contrary to my values. And so once I had that realization, I thought at that point, I'd love to write something. Could be a book, could be an essay, could be a blog, but I just want to share this message with people in whatever way. And so I pretty much just started doing research. I did about a year's worth of, you know, articles, secondary research, starting to talk to folks. And the more that I learned about this topic, the bigger the kind of scope became. And that's when I realized I think a book is probably the best medium just because. There's so much to kind of digest and think about. I don't think a series of blogs can really do it justice. But, you know, I spent the better part of a year trying to make that book happen just on my own. And it didn't work out. You know, I, I really had a tough time just figuring out how to structure the book. You know, what those different milestones I need to be reaching were. Didn't really have any guidance on the marketing side or really pretty much anything. So with after a year of just tinkering around, I kind of gave up. I was just like, this is so much work. I don't really think this is going anywhere. But, you know, really thankfully, my girlfriend who knew I was trying to write something but wasn't doing a good job of it, she actually found out about the Creator Institute, I think just on LinkedIn and New Degree Press. And I think the message was something like, if you're interested in writing a book, you should check out this program. So she thought, hey, Robert, you know, I think this would be great for you. Why don't you check this out? So I did. You know, I, I reached out filled out, I think, the form that Eric had posted. And you know, after I jumped on a call with him, it seemed like this platform was an amazing way to get the book I was struggling to write really off the ground. And I think what compelled me to join NDP specifically was opportunity to build a community of fellow authors because writing is kind of a lonely endeavor. And it's really helpful to have folks that are going through that process with you the kind of structural support that comes in the form of different kinds of editors, tutorials and guides to navigate that kind of complicated book writing process. And then all the programs, success cases, which really seems to me like this is a great way to kind of hybrid self-publish and get this project off the ground.
1: You know, it's interesting when you sort of put a creative journey out to the world and start to work on one and people in your life know it, albeit in this case, it sounds like maybe it was a small universe of awareness around it, but that these amazing things find their way to us. And I think many times people feel, when I wrote my book, I had a number of notes sent to me as I was sharing about it on social media and LinkedIn and this kind of thing. A number of old friends, one, three, five, 10, 15 years I hadn't talked to these folks sent me notes kind of that sounded like yours. And I've been yeah. writing a book for three, five years and I can't get past chapter two. And my observation is, you said an interesting point in there, is people think you write a book from start to finish and you just sort of have this output exercise. And what I've learned over and over again, going through the journey myself and not coaching so many through it, is that it's a journey of learning, right? It's a journey of exploration. And what makes us work is having that structure, that process, to really sort of make a cohesive argument. And that's just such an important part of it. So thanks for sharing that. You know, when you think about mental, so you've got the book off the ground, Mm -hmm. you're going to be an author here, Invisible Filters coming out this May 2022. Super exciting. What, you know, when you think about mental models, how do they sort of find our way into our daily lives? What does that look like in your time, your personal experience and research?
0: Right. I think what astounded me was seeing just in how many facets of our daily lives these patterns of thinking almost you know perniciously and inconspicuously manifest and shape us some great examples include in you know our everyday kind of mental health just for me personally i used to be a really negative person and suffered from a lot of anxiety and it took years you know it's not like this happened overnight but it was a conscientious effort introspecting using cognitive behavioral therapy techniques and some other techniques to kind of pretty much understand and map out my pattern of thinking, which would inevitably, you know, take the form of, you know, Rohit's going on about his day, a trigger kind of happens. It could be stress from work. It could be feeling lonely, feeling bored, you know, whatever, whatever that trigger is, something happens. And my mind immediately starts to go negative. It starts to wonder, why am I so stressed out? You know, oh, this job sucks. Oh, why do I feel lonely? This is not great. Have I been feeling lonely for a long time? What could solve this? And I notice that my mind tends to spiral. Once I do have an inevitable stress trigger or some other kind of trigger, I tend to go into this anxious negative spiral that only kind of gets worse. And it took me years to understand that that's just a pattern of thinking that for whatever reason I engage in, in a very frequent basis. And, you know, it took me a long time to kind of understand that process and then work on reframing it. So inevitably in life, you're going to have these triggers that cause stress or cause problems. But what I've worked on and mental models was a great guide was how to prevent that cycle and that pattern from continuing. So let's say once again, you know, I'm feeling stressed out from work or I'm feeling lonely, how can I channel that feeling in a positive way? How do I remember or think about things that I'm grateful for? Doing those kind of exercises over time really helped me change and really improve my mental health. And I think that's one very daily example and something that I used to struggle with a lot. But this also manifests in everything from You know, for me, my decision to stop eating meat was the result of really questioning the way of thinking that support, you know, the treatment of animals in our agricultural system. And that created an illusion that they were being treated in a safe way. That was a big one that I had to unlearn and it shaped me in my daily life. Even my kind of career choices as well. I think for the longest time, even though I found the things I was doing interesting, I was never really passionate about it, whether that was venture capital, investment banking, these kind of very financy paths, which truthfully, I never really saw myself going into when I was younger or even at the time. It just kind of seemed natural because that's what a lot of my friends in college were doing. That's what my parents thought would be very successful and they'd be really proud of me for, you know, so on and so forth. And I realized once again that You know, those decisions were shaped by a way of thinking that wasn't grounded in my reality and my truths. It was grounded in exposures, assumptions, and beliefs that kind of morphed into truths over time. But, you know, it took me some time to realize that that's not really what I'm passionate about. Being able to create, whether that's a book or hopefully in the future, a company that's doing things that are more, you know, mission driven that makes me so much happier and so much more fulfilled. But, you know, it took a long time to understand why I was pursuing these career paths that I never really felt passionate about. And I think that's another great example of how these ways of thinking kind of pervade our choices and shape our decisions in many ways.
1: So what I'm hearing is that Mental models oftentimes can be driven by external influences, our upbringing, maybe the media, our friends, sort of colleagues, the world we live in. And we just have this tendency to sort of go with it, right? And kind of go through this grind day to day. And maybe this is where this sort of nine to five concept, you know, everybody's working for the weekend concept kind of comes from because we don't really like what we're doing and we sort of can't wait for the weekend to roll around. So why does so many of us live in this trap, dare I say? and you know, then have these triggers go off that create this disconnect in our lives. It, it makes me think of you know, we did when I worked uh, on Wall Street, we did a lot of work with DISC, this, you know, per, sort of a personality assessment tool. And one of the things that we learned going through that, because we coached people on it as well and, and did this for teams, client, client teams, was if you were a very high D, for example, dominant in your sort of uh, true self, but then when you came to work, they kind of compared these you were a much lower D because something set you off that sort of forced you to lower that dominant feeling. It created an enormous amount of stress on you and Mm -hmm. created this sort of power struggle within, and it, it made your days far more exhausting. And what we would do is work with people to help them within their teams, allow this D to sort of shine. Why was it not shining? And let's let it shine. It might be an I, it might be an S, whatever it was. Like, our job was to sort of unlock that within the team and help everyone be their, their true selves. And once we did that, the teams flowed so much better, but Mm. sort of, is this nature, nurture, you know, where does it come from? I guess what I'm really thinking about here, Rohit is if I'm 23 years old and starting out my career, how do I sort of know what happy, what happy looks like for me? What's my mission? You know, where do I start with this? Would you say?
0: Right. And I think, I think that's a great question and point, which is right. How do you understand and unravel the influence that your mental models have on you given that i guess the class that i'm talking about are ones that you tend not to be aware of very consciously and you know just to be fair i don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer for you know what makes someone happy i think that's very subjective and it, it differs from person to person but i think the exercise we should all be engaging in is you know shedding a light on our patterns of thinking that are influencing, you know, how we think about what makes us happy, you know, which is also different from person to person, right? So I think, you know, you you said it very well, which is these external forces, which are sometimes unique and sometimes shared to people, you know, the social, sociocultural norms that we are surrounded by, other ways of thinking and mental models of the people that we are close to, our family and our friends, news exposure, etc. That all creates this you know, pattern of thinking, of seeing the world and thinking about things that really changes our perspective. And so I think the exercise for someone who's 23 and trying to figure out you know what to do with their life is why do you think the way that you think? And I think going through that exercise and really introspecting on that will you know it won't reveal what you love to do, but it will reveal you know the lens with which that you're thinking about things. And I think for 95% of the people that go through that exercise, as the, you know, the example you mentioned as well shows, I think that our decisions and ways of thinking don't actually match up with our, our values and our real kind of goals is at least my personal thesis. And I think by going through that exercise, it gives you the space and the freedom to organically discover what it is you do actually enjoy and are passionate about. And I think my life is a great example of that. Where once again, you know, I was on a pretty traditional tech and finance path. I grew up in Silicon Valley. My dad was a co-founder of a successful startup. A bunch of my friends, parents, are all you know, all did the same thing. We were all thinking about tech and finance, you know, in the Bay Area. And it took me a long time just to, to realize that those traditional paths just aren't aren't for me. But it's not something I would have known unless I went through this kind of exercise, unknowingly, to be fair. You know, I have a lot more hindsight, I think now looking back, but, you know, that's pretty much, that was my journey of going from job to job and feeling unfulfilled, unhappy and wondering, you know, why, like what's missing and why am I continuing to make choices that don't make me happy? And inevitably, you know, at least in the career world and sphere, I figured out is because these patterns of thinking were pushing me towards careers that I, I didn't actually feel fulfilled by. And so I actually, I quit my venture capital job back in November. So a few months ago now, and it really gave me the space and time to kind of figure out and go through that discovery and journey. And obviously that's not something I recommend everyone doing. It you know definitely comes from a face of privilege to do that but gave me the time to figure out that climate change is the sector that I'm the most excited about. Whether that's something I do with a tech lens or not, that's going to where I want to dedicate my life and my career. And I wouldn't have been able to do that without going through the journey of figuring out these mental models and then organically trying to figure out what I enjoy, which is, I think, the same exercise that we could all benefit from, whether that's in the career side of things, mental health side of things, from an unconscious bias kind of standpoint, from unlearning bad habits and breaking coping mechanisms. There's so many ways that these mental models, I think, shape our lives and we can really improve them for the better by unlearning or questioning them.
1: What's the story from, I know you interviewed a number of people in your book, right? What's one of your favorites you'd like to share with uh, our audience about a mental model where you saw somebody able to make a change from maybe a more severe circumstance? Definitely.
0: I'd love to quickly share the story of Jesse Gould. He's an army ranger turned psychedelic therapy advocate, and so Jesse's story is is a bit of an interesting one. He enlisted in the army many years ago to protect our nation, and he served about two tours of duty in Afghanistan. But sadly, he returned with a debilitating cocktail of grief, depression, and anxiety. So despite landing a high-flying job at J.P. Morgan, he would struggle to focus, and he felt like he was falling apart every day. And unfortunately for Dusty, he tried a number of different interventions. You know, your classic, you know, anti-depression, anti-anxiety medications. You know, he he did try meditation and some other pretty common technique, but nothing was really working for him until he heard from a friend about ayahuasca, which is a sacred plant administered by shamans in South America. From a friend, yeah, and he decided to just try it out. He had nothing to lose. So he went to South America, went through this two to three day experience, taking the psychedelic substance called ayahuasca. And after that, it it was really a profound spiritual experience where he was confronted with this kind of you know embodiment of mother earth and was able to view his own life from this kind of third party perspective. So really separating his kind of self and his ego from kind of his life I was able to see, you know, his depression and anxiety from that perspective and able to really reframe the way that he was thinking about things. And since then, you know, he's been doing a lot better on the mental health side and these experiences were so profound. He actually started a nonprofit called the Froic Heart Project, which is aiming to connect other veterans like him with these vetted psychedelic substances to help improve their mental health and the core insight here is that psychedelics, like meditation, like cognitive behavioral therapy and other techniques I talked about in the book, those are just one of many ways that we can change these patterns of thinking or at least view them from an external point of view and really understand why why they're there and how to kind of change them. And I thought that was a really incredible story.
1: Really uh, interesting story, and, and what a great resolution for somebody who sounds like was struggling immensely. But I bet on the surface, people thought everything was fine. Has a big job at a big bank, and right, everything's going well. Right. The key thread I'm hearing here is this ability to look at yourself through this objective lens. Why is that so hard for so many of us to do? What you think?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And for whatever reason, I just think we human beings tend to have blinders on when it comes to our work, ourselves, you know, pretty much anything that that's related to us, you know, and it's tough to explain why it could be just our mental models that get in the way. And we're subject to patterns of thinking that we are not consciously aware of. And I think that's a reasonably good explanation, but in general, I, I just like to think that, you know, it's very difficult to, do this kind of introspection, this genuine, you know, third-party introspection, because typically, you know, our feelings get in the way. And, you know, just an example of someone else that I learned about through the book was a researcher named Tasha Eurich, who spent about a year trying to understand why were some people better at self-awareness than others? She called these folks self-awareness unicorns. So she and her team kind of did a, a ton of research and interviews on these people who initially, you know, wouldn't rate themselves high in self-awareness, but over time, you know, ended up being that way. And what she found was really interesting. The key insight here was those self-awareness unicorns ask themselves what, you know, hundreds of times, but why very little. And I don't know if this is a full explanation to what you asked for, but I think it's part of it, which is when you tend to ask yourself why questions. Why am I feeling lonely? Why am I upset at work right now? It tends to elicit some unhelpful answers, like, oh, because my boss sucks. Or, you know, because no one's ever gonna love me and I'm gonna be lonely forever. I think you tend to get in a very defensive position when you self-reflect in that way and ask yourself why. And it doesn't lead to many helpful answers. But when you ask yourself what, you know. What are the conditions that caused me to feel lonely? What were the triggers that led me to feel this way? And what can I do about it? I think those kinds of questions really, you know, lead to more helpful answers. And I think that is just a small microcosm that demonstrates our inability to kind of introspect and understand objectively, you know, these patterns at play because we tend to focus on Or not focused, but we tend to get defensive or get kind of emotional when it comes to ourselves and things about us.
1: You mentioned an interesting point in there, uh, several, but one that caught my ears particularly was this concept of ego, right? I mean, go through anybody's social media page, right? And uh, they probably look pretty amazing or they're having an amazing time, right? (laughs) Like people don't put images out of what they look like when they woke up in the morning and this kind of thing. It's always a sort of perfect setting, although that's, there's some trends changing there, but right, we want to have this, I think image of ourselves out there. <clears throat> and I think one of the things I've run into in my career is many times people take their thoughts, their ideas, their innovations and attach their their self-worth to it, or maybe their income. And then suddenly, if that gets challenged in any way, it's not attacking this idea and how can we you know make a better product or serve our customers better or what have you it's more well i'm right and you're wrong because you're right. attacking my ego so and i'm smarter than you or this kind of thing so i i i can't help but wonder you mentioned ego if that isn't a, a part of the story there right fascinating yeah. and so many great examples of how this comes to comes into play you know you've talked a lot about how mental models Work for us, this key element of you know taking this objective view of yourself, which is not easy, but you offer several options on how to get that done, some more extreme than others. But can we change other people's mental models? Is that possible? How, How do we do that?
0: Yeah, I love that question because that's pretty much how I end the book as well. Most of the book is trying to figure out for you yourself how do you become aware of and change those patterns. But there are times when you'd like to influence others. That maybe have different ways of thinking than you and just to be fair and to be clear you know i think in the political spectrum i think that rarely succeeds or at least the ways that we approach that are not very helpful and actually the same thing applies well climate, (laughs) climate as well where you know obviously that's something i'm really passionate about how do we get more folks aligned to Fighting climate change and being more aware of it, and so I was looking at interesting research that kind of underpins what successful approaches are, and what you know these folks found, which I think was interesting, is that you should lead with values and not facts. Throwing facts at people rarely gets them convinced, and to be honest, if if they operated based on facts in the first place, they may or may not have those you know beliefs anyways. So throwing more facts and statistics at people, whether that's in the political world or climate really doesn't help, but sharing values. So in the climate change example, which would might be around how, you know, treating nature as a kind of, you know, not resource. I don't like that word, but like something shared that a, a shared partner, exactly a shared partner that, you know, can really enrich our lives and protecting it coming from that kind of place and you know for folks who are a little politically minded how you know this kind of green economy can actually create a lot of jobs and give people a lot of meaning in their lives approaching you know climate change from that lens tends to be a lot more effective than saying that all these facts about how global warming is here and the world's going to end really gets people to dig in their heels i guess uh, another example of that is you know, having your kids be the messenger. So I guess the messenger matters a lot. If it's a friend or a trusted friend or, you know, your your child or spouse that kind of delivers this message, it tends to be, you know, heard and felt a lot more deeply than if it's just a stranger on the internet who's kind of yelling at you on social media or comments, that tends to be a little unhelpful. But I think the, the high level, you know, takeaway here is understanding the way that other people think And tailoring your message to their mental models, not yours. And I think that's the biggest problem that people have when they try to influence others. They, they approach that from, Oh, what would convince me? What would I think is really interesting? But, you know, 99% of the time, that's not how someone else who thinks differently, you know, approaches things. And so taking a step back, like, why would that ever work? And it, it, you know, it really doesn't. So. I think the key insight that I found is if you approach these conversations and tailor your message or content to the way that these other people in your life think, I think it tends to be a lot more receptive by trying to understand where they come from. They feel a lot less defensive and feel like you're not attacking them, but trying to just understand why they think the way that they think. And in that process, what I found at least is those folks. They appreciate that and they try to understand where you're coming from as well. Even if you don't always agree, there's more understanding. And the goal of the conversation is just to understand, not to convince and not to argue, which I think is always more fruitful.
1: So take a more curious approach as opposed to uh, the data dump, you know, having. I feel like we've come full circle back to your first job here, my friend, with this idea that we take uh, marketing and match it up to your mental models. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're trying to convince someone of something, marketing is behavior influence, right? And I think the same story exists here. I think maybe there's a thank you letter in order here to your uh, first employer, (laughs) that that (laughs) early employer, about uh, helping set the stage for this. So how do you figure out their mental model? Get curious. Ask them some questions. What's why do you think this way, and how, how does that work? That's brilliant. You know, having spent many years as a sales person and sales leader, nobody ever bought investment. I sold investment products. No one ever bought investment products from me because I told them fifteen amazing statistics. Right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I had at least fifteen, if not twenty or thirty, <laughs> to share. Right? And you no, know, they connected with a story, with a philosophy, with a passion, exactly. with a value that that my firm was trying to deliver to the world and that's what they really connected with or or oftentimes a metaphor how does this how do these numbers really what do they mean to me in in my world and connecting exactly. with them on that level I found so much more powerful exactly. Look, so much here about mental models you've learned growing. what have you learned about yourself along the way here buddy what how has the book changed you in this journey
0: yeah i th- i think i've learned a ton i think i'd say the first thing is i've had this Mental model and way of thinking for much of my life, which told me that I'm not a creative person. That you know, I'm good at math, I'm good at you know, you know, crunching numbers. So let me stick to that. And I think this whole process just showed me that no, I think that's wrong. I think not just for me, but for so many other people. It's just about finding the right medium that you feel comfortable expressing yourself in. And I think for me, that that's been writing in many different forms, but especially in this way, which is. You know, taking a more, I'd say, research driven approach to self help, which is something that I find really interesting and that I'm really passionate about. I think this book also kind of taught me that, you know, about myself that, yeah, if I really am passionate about something, I'll make it happen. And so for much of this book writing process, yeah, I was working a, a pretty fast paced, you know, full time job in venture capital and my nights and weekends were pretty much all just working on the book. I don't think I saw my friends for like you know three or four months at a time, but you know they understood thankfully, and it was all worth it. But I think it just showed to me that, yeah, if you really want to make something happen, you know can't make excuses about it, and you just have to find or make the time to create and kind of put out the message that you want. So I just think those are two of many things that I learned. But you know a big another thing I think also is that once again, writing can be a relatively lonely journey. and so, Having a community of folks that are on that journey with you is just so enriching. And just the support that you can get from that, I think is incredible. So, whatever creative endeavor you decide to pursue, having a community of folks that are doing that with you and going through that same journey, I think is always really special.
1: Yeah, that cohort approach is a pretty powerful one. <clears throat> and I love that. You learned about yourself and how to think more deeply about these things. You have this creative spirit hiding inside of you. And the fact that you have read all of these I mean, literally hundreds of books in the last couple of years and now have turned it into your own is pretty incredible. It sounds like a number of positives in there. Any new surprises that have popped up in your life where people said, Hey, Rohit's writing this amazing book. I need to, I need to get involved somehow. Any unexpected positives there?
0: I think, yeah, just overwhelming interest from friends, family. As I start to create more content, social media type work, just figuring out that these messages really resonate with a lot of other people, whether that's on the mental health side or the career side or, you know, you know, our conscious bias sides, but just finding that so many people resonate with these kind of topics, I think it's been the most encouraging. And I think that's just been uh, really, really positive and helpful.
1: That's fantastic and makes me think of this praise quote that's on the back of your book here I'd like to share with everybody from Will Lynn, Managing Director of ForgePoint Capital that he shared about your book. The importance of self-awareness is at an all-time high and necessary in an increasingly knowledge-based economy. The important step of self-awareness is simply being aware that we all have mental models and biases. These are patterns of thinking that we've that we created with our life experiences or that society taught us is the norm. The Invisible Filter, your book, is an excellent resource in to how to make these models useful for you. How did that feel to get that quote from Mr. Lin?
0: That was incredible. Yeah. But that, that really, I think, is a great way to summarize yep, the kind of thesis of the book and what it can do for, for all of us. So that was awesome. Thank you for sharing.
1: My pleasure. And it, you know what's the, what's the key message here for the book here? What would you like people? What do you hope readers take away?
0: Yeah, I just think that the key takeaway of this book is that, you know, I found so many people live these somewhat inauthentic and troubled lives that don't really bring them joy or happiness. And my research has taught me that individuals largely live with these ingrained patterns of thinking that leave them stuck with no way to break out. And the main takeaway of this book is that, in fact, we actually all have agency and we can change our thought patterns to live more authentic, fulfilling lives. And it's never too late to be able to change those patterns, no matter how old or how stuck you feel.
1: We all have mental models. We all have the ability to change them. And it's never too late. Take a step back. Find a way to do it. There are many ways your book offers to get that done. Find a way to get that objective view so you can separate yourself from these decisions, right, is what I'm hearing, and take that clear, zoomed out view of what's going on. And that allows us to make better decisions and understand where we're really coming from and what we're truly passionate about. What a fantastic message, Rohit. What is next for you?
0: Yeah, so next for me, I think, as you mentioned, the book is coming out in May, and that will pretty much be available in most platforms where books are available. So definitely look out for that. If you want to stay tuned for the journey and just learn more, you know, feel free to follow me at my website, rohitgupta.fiz you know, happy to share more with, you know, the the podcast notes as well. And I can share some social handles, but that's pretty much what's coming next in terms of the book. And then outside of that, I'm kind of at the early stages of starting a company in the sustainability and kind of climate space. So stay tuned for that as well.
1: Sounds like a lot of amazing days ahead for you and that you've really gotten a great handle at a pretty young age of what is valuable to you, and you've made significant change. And it sounds to me like you're living a, a better and happier life. And I'm, I'm really, uh, really excited for you. And what's next? And what's what's coming down the pipeline for you, Rohit? Uh, Rohit's book, The Invisible Filter, will be available wherever you buy books online late spring 2022. You can find out about more more about him at his website, as he said at Rohit R O H I T Gupta G U P T A dot biz b i z Rohit, great to see you. Thank you so much for being on the show here today at the Creator Community.
0: Thank you so much again for having me, John. It was a real pleasure and I can't wait to keep the conversation going.
1: The pleasure is all mine. Don't forget to subscribe to the Creator Community channel wherever you get your podcasts, YouTube, Apple, Spotify. Please write us a review. I'm your host of the Creator Community, John Saunders. Keep moving
0: forward.